You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 40, Neurodiversity. Today on Minding the Brain, we're going to tackle the topic of neurodiversity. And since I know a little bit, but not very much on this topic, I thought it was important to bring in the experts. So joining us in the studio today, we are very fortunate to have Tara Connolly. Now, Tara is the Assistant Director of Research and Development for what's called the Research Education Accessibility Design or READ Initiative at Carleton University. She is a transition specialist. And what that means is she has over 20 years of experience consulting on the use of what are called inclusive practices to support accessibility in numerous uh, settings. She's worked in school boards, she's worked in post-secondary institutions, government agencies, as well as healthcare settings as a content expert to build capacity in accessible practices. She's also a psychotherapist, and in her counseling practice, Tara supports uh, neurodiversity of thinkers, in particular adults and youth on the autism spectrum, in order to thrive on what she says is her their own terms and create, co-creates meaningful strategies that facilitates transitions into and throughout adulthood. So Tara is going to be uh, one of our experts talking on, on the topic of neurodiversity. We also have joining us uh, in the studio, Kate Bowser. And Kate is uh, currently a BA psychology student at Carleton University. She also has cerebral palsy and she's well known on campus uh, in her wheelchair with her uh, support service dog, Jax. So Kate, can you introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners? Hi, my name is Kate Bowser. I'm a Carleton University alumnus and current student. I earned my first undergraduate degree, a Bachelor of Arts Honors in Human Rights with a minor in, in Indigenous Studies uh, back in June of 2020. And now I'm taking courses towards uh, social work. And with the intent of doing a master's? Yes, eventually. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about uh, neurodiversity is I'm disabled. I have um, cerebral palsy, um, which causes brain damage at birth, um, and I so I have I have uh, learning disabilities in addition to um, mental health issues as well. So that's how I got into neurodiversity as a concept that is. Uh, interesting to me, but also more positive than um, some other ways of viewing disability neurological disabilities. We also have joining us Patricia Berube, who is a PhD candidate in cultural mediations. And Patricia also identifies uh, as neurodiverse because she has bipolar type 2, uh, which is a form of uh, bipolar disorder. So Patricia, can you just tell a little bit uh, about yourself and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Uh, well, thanks for having me, Kim. Uh, I am a PhD candidate in cultural mediations here at Carlton. I also work as a teaching assistant in disability studies and I am on the Carleton Student Mental Health Engagement Committee and I'm also part of the READY program uh, which is a program in research, uh, education and accessibility design and innovation on campus. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that means in your role with READY? Yeah, well, already is basically a, a, a program that trains students to acknowledge uh, accessibility issues um, in different uh, spheres of their lives, whether it be uh, professional or academic, uh, and to provide solutions and to think of, you know, different innovation that could help people uh who have uh, accessibility issues. So welcome everybody in the studio. I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation today. 
I'm going to start out with a question for Tara. Tara, can you define for our listeners what exactly is neurodiversity? Neurodiversity is a concept that refers to neurological differences um, that we all as humans have and and see it as a natural variation. So it's recognizes, it sort of recognizes that the developmental neurological differences are actually part of a greater whole uh, rather than sort of um, something that's carved off or very different. And um, within that whole, there might be folks who are neurotypical and people who are a little bit more neurodivergent um, in their wiring. So can you give us some examples of what what would be somebody who's more neurodivergent? Absolutely. So um, in this term, it, it often refers to, say, for instance, autism. Um, it can include ADHD, dyslexia, and um, other, other types of uh, developmental or learning differences. What I also really like about the term neurodiversity is that it reinforces the notion of diversity. So autism is diverse. ADHD is diverse. There's not one representation of an autistic individual, a, a person with ADHD. Um, there's actually a really large diversity of perspectives, experiences, strengths and challenges within each of these categories. So it really encourages us to think a bit more about the natural variations of our wiring as human beings and how that interplays with our context, like our environment, our identity, and in how we function and interact with the world. So it, it I like that it reminds us that we're not simply um, a set of, of criteria criteria, but rather that we are a part of a whole system and there is contributions to that system, as well as potentially challenges that we may face within that that ecosystem or that neurological uh, diversity system. So I'm going to ask now, I'm going to turn to our students. So Patricia, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, building on what Tara said, what exactly is neurodiversity to you? Neurodiversity really started as a movement in the early 90s, and it was dominated by people who were diagnosed with Asperger syndrome, uh, as well as other form of eye-functioning autism. So basically, uh, these individuals considered that their condition was a human specificity and that it should be respected as is. Um, but since then, things have evolved and the term has been uh, claimed by other uh, people who have different uh, neuro neurological differences. Uh, we can count people with ADHD, bipolar disorder, dyslexia, uh, developmental dyspraxia, uh, epilepsy, Tourette syndrome, and you know, that's just to name a few. Yeah, so my reading of the sort of the term in neurodiversity and the movement, as you were alluding to, is that it's this recognition that folks that are are not neurotypical, right, uh, who would so-called, you know, not have any um, uh, mental neurological um, uh, differences. Uh, it's a way to say, you know what, it, you know, to have ADHD or autism, because those are what I knew the term neurodiversity was really recognized around those two um, diagnoses. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a superpower, right, in some ways that... To have a neurodiverse brain, it, it's just you, you're different. You're not, um, because there, there have been so many negative connotations around receiving the di a diagnosis such as autism or ADHD. And I think it's interesting that, so again, I'm, I'm just learning and, and, and really becoming more aware of, of the, the broadening of the term neurodiversity. I didn't realize that it was, was inclusive of folks with psychiatric diagnoses such as bipolar um is is it broader even to things like depression 
um, anxiety disorders? Yeah, I think so. And I think we just need to, you know, acknowledge that there's no standard brain. There's no normalcy. You know, I always tell my student that my normalcy is quite different of the, their normalcy, but each normalcy is okay. Uh, there's no there's no problem in having these differences. They actually can bring a lot of richness into our, our day-to-day life and how we think and how we, you know, experience the world. And Kate, what about you? I love a quote by um, neurodiversity advocate John Elder Robinson. He says, 99 uh, neurologically identical people fail to solve a problem. It's often the 1% fellow who's different that holds the key. Yet that person may be disabled or disadvantaged most or all of the time. Um, people are disabled because they're on the edges of the milk what is considered the bell curve rather than um, because they're sick or broken. So on that note, like, you know, why we're here today, why is it important to understand and have meaning of the concept of neurodiversity? Like when when you think about the general public, there isn't much knowledge on the concept of neurodiversity outside of, you know, maybe some academic spheres. And also if you're, you're in the community of folks that are neurodivergent. So why is it important that we're having this conversation today? I think one of the reasons why it's really important is just to have it in discussion is to start valuing it um, and mm. understanding that, you know, all wirings have a contribution. All wirings have um, their strengths and their challenges, whether you are, you know, falling within that neurotypical group or a neurodivergent group. Um, understanding that we are a full neurodiversity of thinkers, I think, is a really powerful way to start enriching our communities and working on accessibility. When you understand that there's a full neurodiversity of thinkers, you can then be uh, incorporating incorporating that into how you design uh, from the get-go the accessibility of your environment, whether that's the the physical environment, the social environment, the learning environment, any one of those things. Um, that understanding is a first step. So just even having the discussions around neurodiversity, I think, is is a great thing. Um, and also it, it it, the concept itself takes it out of sort of just a, um, a completely medical model as if this is a, a purely health experience and where a lot of um, individuals on the spectrum, autistic researchers are saying, look, we are wanting to promote the idea that this is um, an experience that I can use and leverage to contribute to the world in many, mm-hmm. many different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. So, so taking that up, right? So a lot of my work actually focuses on neurotypical folks um, as well in terms of understanding how, how to crack open those spaces. It's not, we often will say, hey, the person who has the quote unquote difference or the one, the perceived difference needs to do the work to thrive in the environment. Well, who says that? Really? That's great. Yeah. And so b- building off of this, I'm wondering if um, I know that there's some controversy or some discussion, I would say, about how individuals who are neurodiverse might identify. So, for example, there's some discussion as to whether individuals identify um, with language that's identity first or person first. So, for example, somebody who has autism, do they identify as autistic or as a person who has autism spectrum disorder? My preference tends to be identity first, though I am also comfortable with person first. Um, I think that uh, another key point is uh, 
especially for people with autism or who are autistic, the, their neurological differences really um, help determine how they, their sense of self and how they experience the world um, versus someone like a neurological difference like epilepsy, which is a disability in itself, but it's not as identity focused necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree. There's no consensus, right? Nobody agrees on one right solution to, to how to properly address uh, these differences. And, you know, like first, let, let's say in my case, um, I don't want to be called uh, Patricia with bipolar disorder, right? Mm -hmm. I am bipolar. Mm -hmm. That's my, you know, it affects my whole personality, my energy levels. It, it's completely tied to myself. So for me, uh, using person first language makes no sense, but I have a friend mm -hmm. who is bipolar type one and for her own preference is to be addressed as uh you know her name plus uh with bipolar disorder she doesn't want to be <laughs> referred to uh with the name of her right. disease so so i guess the the important thing is if there is an individual in your life who ha who is neurodiverse the best thing you can do is ask them how they would like to be referred yeah, I think one thing is to ask. And then the other thing is, you know, um, in disability studies, we talked a lot about uh, the charity model, which is which is meaning basically that we take pity over people uh, with different disabilities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, especially when talking about depression and anxiety, which we tend to banalize uh, in our discussions, to not say this person suffers from uh, mm -hmm. depression. Mm -hmm. I think this person is living with depression. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's very important to nuance the discourse. Tara, I'm going to talk to you first about um, the uh, the concept of you know folks entering into places like colleges and university and higher education. And I, I want if you could take a moment maybe to talk to our listeners about the barriers that neurodiverse folks may face when they're entering spaces such as higher education, college and university, given your background in uh, at Algonquin and developing the, the transitions program for autistic folks. In terms of barriers at post-secondary, what sometimes students will report uh, can be challenging is um, the reaching out, sometimes reaching out and communicating with professors. That can sometimes be a challenge. Uh, one strategy we will often suggest is um, having almost like a suite, a communication suite, some pre-written uh, emails that would be, you know, that would work in different scenarios, but that are already ready to go and you just kind of fill in the prof's name and your particular little part of the issue, because that's harder to do when you are feeling a heightened anxiety, for instance, or um, something is impacting you and you have to reach out about it. It's tougher to do that. So having those things prepped and ready, that's some of the things we do to support. Um but the idea, too, of navigating that social space, again, post-secondary, although we think about it as, okay, this is your academic journey, it's a social journey, very much so. And to feel connected and included in that space, to thrive and do the learning that you would like to, to do the types of research research you would like to, um, all of those pieces are also interconnected to how you're navigating that space. Um, and I think also just some of the the certainly the learning skills, all of those pieces, just as for any other student, those are important. Uh, so those those can be barriers at times for, for students on the spectrum as well. Um, one thing I noticed is that our students often said it was great to have a drop-in space and particularly one where people just got it. 
They didn't have to explain why it was they were having a challenge in that moment. Uh, they didn't have to, you know, explain to someone who was neurotypical who might not understand why something is overwhelming in a moment. They could just go figure it out, maybe talk to someone who got it and get back to rocking it in their post-secondary journey. And that's why we we created the the student support at Algonquin to be one that was student informed, but also that could be leveraged, right? It was not a place you, don't, you go just to, when you have problems either, right? It was a place to go to connect and uh, celebrate your successes. And so, because barriers are not in isolation, barriers are there and you live them. <laughs> you live them and you experience them and that has other ripple effects. So it's it's not a matter of there's just a couple of barriers out there that we need to um, get rid of, which of course we do. We want to address barriers through the design of our programming, through the design of our spaces, all of those things with accessibility in mind. But when someone experiences a barrier, there are these resonating or rippling effects that can happen and there needs to be a way for them to also manage and deal with that. So then I'm going to turn to our students here. So uh, Patricia, why is neurodiversity important to recognize in um, education or university setting? Well, I mean, I think it, it has to start with the students, right? So students have to speak up about these. Um, I will talk from my, my personal experience because I'm not comfortable talking for others here. But in my case, even before getting my diagnosis, uh, which was in 2019, I, I did start my my PhD at Carleton in 2018. And I would let everyone know that something was up with my moods, right? Uh, <laughs> that I couldn't always control and that I might disappear for a few months and then come back very enthusiastic. Um, and, and that was the way I was functioning, right? So I told everyone, my prof, my department. Um, and then when I got the, the diagnosis, they actually uh, accompany me through it. Um, they would be very like uh, com compassionate towards me uh, because I was honest about it. And I was saying like, I'm not sure I'm going to make the next deadline, right? I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I might need uh, time. And Kate, what about you? Uh, can you comment on your own experiences with um, recognizing your uh, neurodiversity in higher ed? One way university can become more accepting of people who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent is to recognize that there is a history of what I call um, academic ableism, which is a term I borrow from uh, Jane Dolman, uh, professor at the University of uh, Waterloo. And basically, that the, the argument is that uh, historically, universities have purposely weeded out people who are neurodiverse or neuro, neuro, neurodivergent by um, certain norms of productivity and performance. And uh, that is one of the, the big things that I found is that support for um, disabled students or students with disabilities has been good or is getting better over time, but the same sort of support is not necessarily extended to graduate students or disabled staff and faculty. What is the impact on a student when neurodiversity is not acknowledged? I think the biggest impact is that they don't uh, have the opportunity to succeed and they may end up dropping out or thinking that they can't they can't finish their, their degree because uh, they don't have the support. And Patricia, do you have anything else to add? 
Yeah, from my community, uh, members have told me that, um, you know, when it was not acknowledged, they just felt usually abandoned by the school first, and then they felt like they were unequipped to carry on because they see other students succeeding, having like, you know, the usual struggles of students, like being anxious with uh, exams coming up, but they they were in this lump that was so much lower, or, you know, they they can't seem to find stability and and to be focused enough. So all these issues makes it more complicated on the students who feel stigmatized because of, you know, the expectation, because of the other students and then because of some professors who will not accommodate. Um, And, you know, I had a student once um, ask me this question and and it got me really thinking. And they said to me, I said, oh, you know, I, I loved your lecture on ADHD. Uh, it made me wonder, should it be a person with ADHD giving that lecture, right? So, the, you know, it got me thinking because I've, I've heard this sort of murmurings before about the suggestion that neurodivergent folks should be taught by individuals who are also neurodivergent, mm-hmm. right? And so me standing up in the classroom being not having ADHD, should I be teaching about ADHD? Yeah, I mean, that's a a great question, right? And and I think there should be more professors who are neurodivergent, right? Or neurodiverse, uh, of course. But, you know, what they can bring into the table is that their lived experience contribute to make the classroom more of a safe space for such discussion. But then again, I mean, there's so many diagnoses, so many variability for each diagnosis. It's impossible to have a lived experience that relates to all. Um, And I think that, you know, what is important to know is that when you have someone teaching with a a disability or with a neurodiversity, um, a neurodiverse mind, well, actually, what they bring to the, 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 the students is their compassion, I think. And that's what's needed. It's compassion, you know, understanding that difference is okay and trying to find ways to keep them motivated and find other ways to evaluate them when things don't work out the way it's supposed to, or, you know, the way you expect the majority to stu- of students to follow. Um, and, and this, this uh, of course, is a, a great discussion. And I think another other solution that we could bring to the table would be to have like a mandatory intro class to disability studies 101 in every program, science, uh, social science as well, arts, name it. Um, and, you know, this would really ensure that everyone is aware uh, of cerebral differences, but also physical differences. And, you know, maybe have some tools on how to better help and be allies when they're not concerned by these. Um, I think this would really be a game changer and, and it's something I wish to see. Uh. So I want to move away from the concept of barriers. Let's, uh, let's look more positive, right? So how do we create space in institutions, higher education, workplaces to not only acknowledge, but also support folks who are neurodiverse? So Tara, why don't you, why don't you start answering that question? Well, I love that you were talking about um, even just not focusing completely on barriers because when we talk about um, the last thing we want to hear is that our experience is a problem. Our experience is just about navigating barriers, right? As people, we have fulsome lives and we bring a lot to the table at any given moment. And and what I will often say when we're talking to post-secondary students who are navigating that post-secondary space is that you want to mitigate for your challenges. Like So knowing yourself and knowing what your challenges are, that's important because you want to mitigate for those and you want to leverage your strengths because you have those too, 
right? So it's not just about looking at the barriers. It's also where are you going to thrive? Where are you going to shine? Um, what are your, sometimes, you know, we'll delightfully say, what are your superpowers? And then let's start using those as well too. Um, but the challenge is when uh, we create, we will often say to students, hey, reach out to us, you know, whether it's as profs or as a student service, but we're asking them to reach out to something that might not be easily accessible in the sense that if it's a service where um, it's a really high level environment where you have to navigate a bunch of things, it's it's loud, it's crowded, it's only between these two sections of hours, you know, that's not terribly accessible. So looking at that too, when we say, hey, reach out. What I've been hearing from one of so a few of my colleagues who've been doing research in this, uh, autistic researchers looking at the post-secondary space, is that there's not a lot for grad students, for instance. Um, the, mm. You know, so we, yes, we have mm. our general academic accommodations and our centers, um, you know, for instance, at Carleton, there's the Paul Menton Center, which is an excellent center that really uh, has so many different types of supports for all sorts of students, right? Uh, but a lot of times autistic folks will say, but extra time on tests is not what I need. That's not what's going to help me thrive. For some students it might, for others it won't, right? So sometimes the the accommodations are not actually what um, is going to, or aren't perfectly matched in that sense. So I think when you talk now about wanting to shift to what are the, um, what are the positives or the ways that you can start sort of... Um, creating spaces, I think one, it's to make sure that our services, our supports, um, our offerings resonate with neurodivergent thinkers, right? Because if we're asking them to reach out to us in, um, in, in any setting, ways. yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. right? That doesn't yeah. really make sense. So, yeah. so the project there is for neurotypical folks to really start learning more and being open, as you said, and listening to what is the experience so that design of offerings can be can keep that in mind so that's one really important thing i'd say um i think too when you think about workplaces right we know that um many students are graduating and they're graduating with the the same um same as their peers but for instance they might not have the same work experience so our our work experiences, whether that's work integrated learning or our co-op opportunities or even our volunteer opportunities, are they accessible? So looking at that and making sure that's the case, because we know uh, when you head out to the work world, you can have the same degree as someone else. But if you don't have the experience to share or to draw on, it's going to be a little bit tougher for you when you're you're trying to get hired. Right. And that is the experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly people in the spectrum, too, have to navigate the the social aspect of an interview. Interviews are set up mm -hmm. that way. So speaking on of challenges, uh, we are living in fairly challenging times. So for our listeners that are listening to this sometime in 2023, let's hope our podcast is still alive then. Um, we are currently recording in 2021, uh, which is arguably one of the most challenging times in uh, in historic in our, our lives, at least. Uh, given that we we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result, globally, we've had to pivot to the online world, um, both in our workspaces and in our learning spaces. So, Tara, I'm wondering if you can speak to some of the challenges that neurodiverse folks might be facing given our online world right now. How, how are they coping? How are they managing? What are you hearing uh, in your practice? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, because this time has provided 
in terms of accessibility, this shift online and major use of online uh, has provided some emerging opportunities, but also some new challenges and barriers as well. Um, I think it's important to mention, too, that, you know, just as you couldn't speak to the experience of all individuals mm. everywhere, I can't really speak to the experience of all neurodiverse thinkers and neurodivergent thinkers Um but I definitely can give you some information around what I'm hearing from my practice, as you said, um, and from my work at post-secondary. But I wanted to sort of point out that definitely there's uh, a lot of, um, you know, autistic individuals are best positioned to provide the expertise about their own lived experience. And I also have many colleagues who are extremely well-versed, not only in their own lived experience, but in the research. They are autistic researchers and are are doing that research out there in the field. But having said that, I, uh, from my own experience, I here's what I'm seeing. I, I think that uh, being online, depending on how much you're expected to be online, is having definitely some impacts. Uh, for instance, if you think about ADHD, uh, let's, let's even just think of the example of when we go into a classroom, we don't typically, I'll take a post-secondary experience of online learning perhaps, we don't t- typically go into a classroom and have to see all of our other peers. Uh, mm. We're not facing them. Also, we don't look at ourselves while we're learning. Mm-hmm. But this new shift very quickly had people in um, a space where potentially they were seeing all their other student peers. Um or themselves, and and that focus and that attention can be really tough um, and and, and distracting. I think being online for hours at a time can be a real stress on the neurosystem, and Mm -hmm. there is a need of time to recover from that. There's there's all sorts of challenges around that, Um, that that shared attention that people have to uh, exhibit where, where they're you know, watching a chat and they're listening to an instructor or they're listening to their boss and they're having to watch people do things in the chat, whatever that is, those, those can be challenges as well and are, are just taxing. They're taxing on a system. And I think that many people are experiencing that. It has a particular um, effect for, for people whose um, their neurodevelopmental wiring makes that a challenge to begin with. I, I know that I've also heard from people that you know, the idea of the blending of spaces, right? Uh, some people are finding that really exhilarating and they're finding connection through that, whereas others are feeling like it invades their space or mm. that their sacred, you know, private space is now sort of open to other, like all the people they're meeting with. Um, I certainly know too, just that, that, you know, there are a lot of folks on the spectrum who have been really, really quite, in a quality way, leveraging the digital environment, the online environment to um, connect with communities, to you know have friendships, to perhaps they're, they're gaming, maybe they're part of an interest group. Um, they might be having something that they're extremely interested in that isn't in their local community. So they're, they're parts of groups that are elsewhere that share that interest. So there's many people who are actually quite used to spending time online, but now the expectation is that everything in life is about that, right? With the, mm. with the pandemic and the shutdowns that are occurring, uh, people are having to do more and more of that. So I think that does become become taxing. Yeah, and I'm hearing from my students, uh, who have, I have several that have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, and finding it really challenging to organize their time 
um, because they've lost the regularity of the classroom, the physical moving to one classroom to another, they, the mental hooks of seeing people that kind of remind them to engage in certain tasks. So there, several of them are, are really you know, falling apart in, in, in the online space. Of course, we have folks that can support them with that. But, um, you know, I, I, I really, my heart goes out to them in the sense that they, they have, were suddenly placed with a whole other environment in which they have not yet learned to acquire the skills in order to be more focused and attentive in, in an online environment. Yep. You will find that actually, and I'm not sure if you've d- explored the term executive functioning with your listeners before, but anyone who has a challenge uh, in the executive functioning realm, uh, this this time where we're having to be online and not having all of those regular routines, those, those visual cues for ourselves that we use, those structures that keep us kind of motivated and initiating things, that keep us organized, all of those things have sort of shifted and... Um, And with the pandemic, things have not been the same either, right? There's been greater or lesser degrees of um, being either on a campus or um, in school systems, if you're thinking of people who are younger. So they're going back and forth and there's lots of those transitions. So yes, it is, I think, very, very tough. Um, One one strategy that people uh, can use, I've used this before myself, is uh, the idea of body doubling, which is when you can have someone online um, that you are meeting with online, you're doing your own work, they're doing their own work. So it's not, it's not coaching. It's not, um, in fact, there's very little conversation that's going on, but it's sort of a shared agreement of sharing that space to um, just sort of engage in work and tasks. And that can sometimes provide uh, both a, because it's time structured so there's a contained amount of time you're doing it so you could choose to do it you know from 9 to 12 on a Thursday morning you could meet a study group for an hour whatever that is Um, that's a time where it's sort of acknowledged we're coming together we're going to work on something and we're working on our own individual pieces so kind of last question here because I think um, I, I always like our listeners to walk away with something Uh, meaningful. And I'm sure several of us listening in are either managers, supervisors, teachers, human beings, you know, working and interacting with folks who might define as neurodivergent or neurodiverse. So what's one thing that you would like our listeners to walk away from today, being more educated on the topic of neurodiversity? What's what's one thing that you hope they're going to take back into their homes or their workspaces um, that you think is is going to be that sort of aha moment? What? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I'll go back to the idea that of diversity. And so not to make assumptions about um, any particular category of people, right? And, and I think also to to be spending time thinking about what you can do to create more space for people to thrive in. Mm. And, and I know that's a, that's a, you know, maybe that's a tough ask. Maybe that's a, well, how do you know that? Well, what, what do you do? You, you, you make sure that you are hearing from and listening to and giving space for folks who are neurodivergent to share their experience, to say what they need, 
Um, but I think also whenever we're asking people to outreach or say what they need or disclose or any of those things, it can be a really uh, quote unquote mm. othering experience, right? Mm-hmm. When it's not mm-hmm. actually normed in the setting. And so having these discussions in general, that we are all diverse, that we all have different wiring, that we all experience the world in different ways, and that that in itself is very, that's our common thread, right? And so to make it far more common to be discussing those things, acknowledging those things and valuing those things is what's going to be, I think, extremely powerful because I'm not going to feel like I want to say, hey, by the way, um, I'm having a really hard time participating in this staff meeting because I have a sensory processing disorder or, you know, whatever this is that I'm, I'm working with in a moment of time. I'm not going to want to say that if that kind of others me, mm. right? That's going to be mm-hmm. a lot more difficult. Whereas if we are continually looking at what are the experiences people have in environments based on their wiring, based on their processing, based on... Uh, all of the ways that they experience the world, then we have more opportunities for people to um, teach each other how to kind of come together and create a space. So for me, it's about co-creation, really. It's not about let's expect neurodivergent people to um, do all the work in figuring out how to thrive in a setting that might not be necessarily made for, you know, super set up for them. Uh, And it's not about um, saying, hey, someone who's neurotypical, you should intuit and know already what someone needs. And worse, you shouldn't go ahead and assume it and then start creating solutions for that, right? So there's a a common thing said uh, by many autistic researchers and people in community, nothing about us without us. And Mm -hmm. that often refers to research that's being done, but truthfully, it's about everything. And that brings us to just the notion of inclusion in general, whether we're talking about uh, neurodiversity, whether we're talking about uh, a, a variation of all sorts of different lived experiences, that's important. Don't don't be designing things without the input of the people that it would be designed, quote unquote, for. Well, I think you've given our listeners a, a wealth of information today, uh, Tara, and I thank you very much for coming on to Minding the Brain. And uh, Kate and Patricia, thank you as well for your extremely valuable inputs. As Tara was saying, nothing about us without us. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us today and contribute to this wonderful conversation. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, funded in part by a Carleton SSHRC Knowledge Mobilization Grant and made possible by mitochondria for giving our neurons the energy to make sense of themselves. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.